Hey, how many of you remember this? There you go. Um, <laughs> you know, I, what was this, 2004 or 5 and 6 and 7 and 8? Yeah, I think this is 08. If I did my math right, I think this is 08. And I, uh, I put, putting all kidding aside here, uh, I hate the Packers. But, uh, but seriously, I have always, always uh, trained my boys well, right? Right? We hate the Packers, right? And I remember when they were, when they were younger and, and they would ask me, uh, Dad, what do you think of Brett Favre? We hate Brett Favre. And I'd say, oh, no, 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 no. I love Brett Favre. It's okay to hate the Packers, to hate the sin, but not to hate the sinner. You know, so, um, so you, you uh, I always have been a Brett Favre fan. And I remember watching this news conference and just being choked up because of how uh, amazing Brett Favre was to watch. And many of those games, okay, many of those games against the Vikings, right? So, I remember watching that thinking, wow, this is an end of an era. It, we are achieving something, and it is, it is gone. It's like saying goodbye to an old friend, right? Goodbye, old friend. Whatever happened with that again? Oh, that's right. Yeah, he came to Minnesota. <clears throat> I know, I know, I know, I know what happened. Okay, you don't have to remind me. We are saying goodbye to an old friend today. Um, for the last 14 months, we have been in the book of 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is having its press conference today. It is, <laughs> at least in this church, it's a teary thing. It'll come out of retirement someday, but I, right now it is not. And, and we're saying goodbye to a book of the Bible uh, that for many of you in the room, uh, 14 months, uh, this might be your first real church experience. I just want to give you a word of encouragement. There are 65 other books in the Bible. Okay, so there you go. We're excited about that, right? Uh, but... We have spent a lot of time in this book, and it has become kind of an, an old friend. I always feel that way about series, especially when they go longer like this one in particular. It's, it's time, but it's time. It's kind of like, uh, yeah, it's time to move on. And so if you got your Bible with you, you can open up to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. There isn't an insert this week. The insert machine is on spring break. So I'm on spring break, I guess. Anyway. Two last things Paul's going to talk about in the last chapter, one of which we talked about last week, which was the um, collection for God's people. We talked about giving. What does giving really look like? What does it mean to be a gospel giver? And I talked about a few things there. I'm actually quite amazed that there was uh, relatively little pushback. I don't believe in the New Testament tithe. In other words, I don't think you owe. You get to give. And giving is giving, not investing. And I spent a lot of time on that. It was really fun. So... I just encourage you to take a look at that passage again, the first four verses. Uh, however, this week we're going to talk about Paul's final farewell, his final thing he wants to say to them. He's giving him his love. It's the end of the letter. So if you're there, we're going to read five to the end of the book. And we are going to end 1 Corinthians uh, today. Verse 5, let me read it together with you. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you a while or even spend the winter, so that you can help me on my journey, wherever I go. I do not want to see you now, uh, and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work is open to me, and there are many who oppose me. 
If Timothy comes, see to it that nothing uh, that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for, he's, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. No one then should refuse to accept him. Send him on his way in peace, so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he, is, when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you, brothers, be, uh, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunus, and Achaeus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, Write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone, does not have the, if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Come, O Lord. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Hey, Cal, would you go in my office and get my pointer thing, my laser? You know what that is in my bag? Yeah, forgot that. Okay. We're going we're gonna, to, Calvin and I are just going to have conversations by ourselves. So, sorry about that. <laughs> going to kind of take a look at this. This is it. This is the end. And uh, first thing, we're going to look at some travel details that Paul's going to talk about. Up to verse 12 is these just travel situations that he is going through. And if you look at this first uh, part right here, it, it says, oh, no, back up one. There we go. Uh, it says, uh, I'm going through Macedonia. He's going to come to you. Before I show you the maps of what's actually happening here, let me kind of walk you through the important things to see here. He says, I, I'm going to, through this area, this region called Macedonia. And um, I'm coming there, but I'm going to pass through there. And then when I come to you, and this is the cool part, he says, I want to stay with you. Thank you, sir. Uh, I want to stay with you a while and even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. It's a common thing in that. That wasn't uh, codependent or anything. It's just a common way for people to wish you well and maybe send you with supplies or those things for your next step. He says, I don't want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I want to spend some time with you. And that, that's the, it's, it's an encouraging thing if you like the guy. I know. If you don't like the guy and you get a letter like that, you're thinking, keep on moving, keep on moving, you know. But in this case, they, they do like him. He's going to be in Ephesus. We'll see that in just a second. And, and God opened a real cool work for Paul in Ephesus, and you can just read about that. Okay, let's take a look at the map here, and this will make sense to you. Now I have my pointy thing. Thank you, Cal. Okay, Paul's home church is a place over here called Antioch, okay, on the, on the right side. Antioch. Jerusalem, if just to get your bearings, is down here, but they always say, refer to it as up because it's, it's, uh, because it's Jerusalem and because it's a uh, higher elevation. They always say went down from Antioch even though you go north. All right, so his, this is his second journey. If you're following in the book of Acts, Paul does basically three, what's called three missionary journeys. There's a fourth one, but it's basically him getting drugged to prison not really a missionary journey, but kind of is. Okay, so really three. <clears throat> and this time he goes, he goes over here, he goes over there, up around there. This is a place called Troas. He goes up to Philippi. He goes to Thessalonica, Berea. Then he comes to Athens in Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 18, he goes to Corinth. 
Okay, so that's his first visit. That's where he meets the Corinthians. He stays there for 18 months. From there, he jettisons out. He stays, he goes to Ephesus, which he's there just for a little while, goes to this little island thing there, and then comes back to uh, Caesarea, and then eventually up to Antioch. That's kind of the end of that second trip. His third trip, which is right up pretty much right away afterwards, he starts here in, the, in Antioch, goes, this time, uh, back up one. Doesn't he go over? No, that's right. Okay, go ahead forward. He goes again over land. He goes over land to these different places, and he gets to Ephesus. When he gets to Ephesus, he stays there uh, for a couple years. That's when he writes this book to the, to the Corinthians. So he's there for a couple years. He's eventually saying he's going to come up. The, the green means the way up, and the red then means the way out. Goes back through Ephesus again. That's where Acts chapter 20 happens, when he meets up with these elders from Ephesus, and he eventually goes all the way back down here to Jerusalem. Okay, <clears throat> so... What's he talking about? He's saying, I'm going to come and see you. I really want to see you. I'm very anxious to see you. And here's some of my travel plans. He's just letting him know. Second thing, he's going to send someone and his right-hand man, which is Timothy. He's going to send this guy to them. And it's very interesting if you take a look at this. It says, uh, see to it when Timothy comes that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. That's kind of a weird thing to say, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of like me saying, you know, I'm going to invite someone to come and he's going to be amongst us for a while. Just make sure you don't give him anything to fear. <laughs> that's just kind of a different thing to say. In fact, down here at the bottom, he says, no one then, verse 11, should refuse to accept him. It's like, what, a, what an interesting thing to say. And, and we don't exactly know what's going on. There's different speculation. And the big, the big thing people think is that Paul came there first to Corinth, and then came the rock star, which was Apollos. And a lot of people in the church really like this guy, Apollos. He's just got a cool name, if nothing else, right? Apollos. I mean, with that kind of name, you could be a speed skater or something. I mean, this guy <laughs> rocked, and people loved him. And now you're sending us the junior varsity? Why are you sending us Timothy? What's that about? I don't want Timothy. Who's Timothy? I don't want Timothy. Timothy does not make a cool Rock star name. Apollos would rock as a rock star name, okay? But anyway, the point is that they were, he was going to send Timothy and they wanted Apollos probably. In fact, when he goes into this to his next thing about the travel details, he says this. He says, basically asked Apollos to come. <laughs> he ain't coming. <laughs> I begged him to come. He says no. Now, why? Why? I-D-K, right? I don't know. I don't know why. We don't know. It doesn't say. He's quite unwilling to go now, uh, but he'll go when he gets a chance. So Paulus was not going. We're not sure why. Second thing, Paul's final words to them. Um, Paul's going to say some things here just at the end of his letters. Uh, you know, and he says a hodgepodge of things, admittedly, so we're kind of all over the map here a little bit. But he's going to say some things, and it's like, it's like your, um, your last thing that you're going to say before you, you leave, you know? Uh, like the last thing that I tell the boys before I'm gone for a, for a trip, you know, is always, Carol and I always say the same things. Be kind to the person who's watching over you and pick up all the beer cans. Uh, <clears throat> uh, <laughs> anyway, one out of two ain't bad. Um, so, 
No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Those of you who are new to Hope, I'm, that's a joke. So, uh, but I do say that, but it is a joke, even then. I think they figured it out. You kind of say the, the big, broad strokes of what you want to get across, and you're at the door, and you're telling them one more thing, okay? Paul's going to list four big things here. Some people would argue these are the broad strokes of what the whole book of 1 Corinthians is all about, okay? And so here are the broad strokes. He says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong, do everything in love. One, two, three, four, that's five, excuse me, five things. So look at these things here. First thing, be on your guard. I like like short, pithy, I mean, he just says it. No more explanation, just boom. And what this means is, when you're on your guard, you're playing defense from something that could come and get you, okay? Okay? You're playing defense, something Kansas didn't know anything about yesterday. <laughs> uh, anyway, you're, you're, <laughs> did that kill your bracket? My bracket is done, except I didn't pick Kansas to win like someone else I know did. Anyway, um, you're on your guard. You're, 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 you're guarding de- defensively, all right? You need to do that. We need to do that. As a Christian, you have to be on your guard. There are rogue things out there that will come and destroy your faith, destroy you. You can't just say, oh, that sounds spiritual, so it has to be right. How does it fit up with the Bible? You have to ask it. I hope you're asking that right now. You should ask, is what this clown is saying fitting up with the Bible? You're always on your guard. Now, you're not only on your guard. You're more than that, but that's one thing Paul says is be on your guard. Second thing, stand firm. Stand firm in what? The faith. The faith. A lot of you have been, been uh, followers of Christ for just a very short time. And it's important for you to, to read some things which will help you to understand what are the basic tenets of the faith. Um, Hope Community is, is aligned with an organization called Acts 29. One of the guys who's ahead of that, I'm going to quote some of him later, Mark Driscoll, has just written a book. I haven't read it yet, but I'm hoping it's really good for helping people get grounded. It just comes out. It's called doctrine, what Christians should believe. You need to think about what are those things which I need to hold, which I need to stand firm on. Third thing, be men of courage. Now, uh, the men thing there. Uh, it obviously is masculine, but it applies to men and women. And it, what it refi- r- refers to is not so much be men as much as don't be a child. Grow up, is what Paul's telling them. It is kind of an interesting thing to tell somebody, huh? Grow up. But that's because you're grown up. You never look at a two-year-old and say, grow up. What's wrong with you? Paul says you should be like an adult. Grow up. How? Encourage. Step out. We have become, as a culture, um, pretty passive as Christians. We're just, we're just basically, um, you know, being a follower of Jesus means I go to church, and that's basically it. Or maybe say table grace or that kind of a thing. Instead of looking at our faith as a radical thing to go out and to make a difference in every single relationship and situation we're in, we want to be that dangerous. If this room right now, I don't know what it is. I'm not bad at math. It's about 1,500 people, I think. Uh, if, <laughs> no, I have 300 some, whatever. If this room right now 
Forget the other two services. Just this room alone. Where a convention of Al-Qaeda terrorists, it'd be the most dangerous room in the world. Now, I'm not, don't, don't, don't. I'm not advocating Christian terrorism or don't go there. I am advocating be courageous. Make a difference. Go out and infiltrate society. Be men and women, not little girls and little boys, of courage. Fourth thing, be strong. Be strong. Increase in strength, Paul's saying. Do it. Go. Get stronger. It's a bit of a, a rally cry to do these things. And last he says, do everything out of love. I'm going to talk about that more later, so I'm going to leave that for right now. Okay. Then we're going to go with these final words. He talks about this household of Stephanus, and he's basically elevating this group up, this household of Stephanus and a few others. Um, we'll get down to their bottom. He says, people who are like that, you, you really should submit yourself because there's really poor leadership in, in Corinth. Everything is haywire. And so um, he's basically saying, you really should have good leadership. And let me tell you, let me just hint at it. This would be a good place to go. This last part here at the end of it, he says, there are three people that came to visit me from Corinth. And it's this really endearing phrase where it says, they've supplied what was lacking from you. In other words, when I saw them, and you can see it even a little more clear here, they have refreshed my spirit and yours also. In other words, I miss you guys. I miss you. And, I, and when these three people from Corinth came to visit me, it was sweet. It reminded me of old times. They refreshed my spirit because I, it was like I was being around you. Then the last thing he says here is the churches in the province of Asia send greetings. So he's now over in Asia, which is where Ephesus is. They're sending you greetings. Um, by the way, has anybody ever been overseas where this actually happens? It's very interesting. I was in, the, I was in Ukraine, and uh, that's how they open their services. I think it's in Ukrainian, so I think this is what's happening. Somebody told me this was happening. Is they say, is anybody from another church? And people stand up. And then they say, uh, greetings. They have a phrase. They say, greetings in the name of the Lord from the church. Of course, it's all in Ukrainian, so, you know, it's, it doesn't, I don't know what he's saying, but I think that's what they're saying. That's what the translator whispered. And they just go right on through. So if there was 20 people in, the, in this room right now where you were visiting from another church, the other, you'd send their greetings to you. And that's, that's where they get this. Uh, culturally, it's still, they still do it. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly, and so does the church. Uh, my mom, to this day, uh, she's, a, she's a good Norwegian, and she's a rural. She grew up on a farm. This is the way things were done, is when you ended a phone conversation, you did the greeting thing. So-and-so greets you. So-and-so says hi. So-and-so, this and that. And then I, I never, I wasn't, other than my mom, it's just a cultural weird thing for me, because then what am I supposed to do? You know, oh, well, tell them hi, and tell them hi, and tell them, and then, It'll go then through me to the next one. So I'll be on the phone and she'll say, well, tell Carol hi and tell so-and-so hi. And it's like, we'll, we'll pass on the greetings, Mom. But that's just a cultural thing. And that's what he's doing here. He's just saying, hey, I just want to let you know we care about you. We think about you. You're important to us. Okay? And then the last thing, greet one another with a holy kiss. Men, there's your biblical, biblical example of what the next Christian pickup line is. Hey, I'm just trying to fulfill scripture here, baby. See how that works, boys. <laughs> the kiss in that culture, 
And actually, there, there are some of you who have traveled overseas, and, uh, and uh, you've picked this up. Uh, I have a couple people in my life, men. I'm really, I don't know if I should share this or not. But anyway, they do. They just grab me, and they kiss me on the cheek. If you do that, I'll punch you in the throat. But <laughs> if you've been overseas, and it's a big deal to you, I will accept it. But if you haven't been overseas, guard your throat, because it's coming. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but in that culture, it was a sign of respect, affection, and reconciliation. It was a huge deal, okay? So it would have been similar to like a high five. It wasn't just a handshake. It was like a high five or like a bro hug, you know, where you can hold each other for 2.6 seconds and beat each other on the back three times and that's it. That's the kind of thing. It, it's showing respect and it's admiration and the whole thing. And so that's what he's saying. Do that. Do that with one another. Hope. Do that with one another. Do that with one another. Love on one another. Greet each other with a holy insert anything but kiss there. Now, because it's a cultural thing. Now, yesterday afternoon as I'm prepping through this uh, sermon, Calvin asked me a great question. He said, Dad, do you ever find it hard to find the main point in a passage? To which I thought, oh, ow. Uh, <laughs> Are you saying something here that you're not saying? Uh, what's the point, Dad? But uh, for some of Calvin's classes, he actually has to take notes. And he's like, what's the point here? Uh, but for the point of a passage, well, yeah, this one is quite difficult. This one is. I mean, it's a bunch of travel plans and final words. And here it seems like it ends. I'm going to suggest to you that what comes next is the main point. Uh, and here's how I get to it. Uh, this letter right here, uh, is a letter, if you just, it's, it's a little, I don't know exactly the, it would be a great letter to, uh, to, to understand. I don't understand the whole letter. I just found it uh, looking for a letter that had a personal note on it. But if you see the top there, it's Congress of the United States. It's dated uh, Jan, June 18th, 1945. Okay? So those of you who know anything about history, it's right at the end of World War II. Is that correct? Yeah. End of World War II. And if you look at the signature there, it's Lyndon B. Johnson. Fair enough. So this is a letter from future president, uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, who became president in 1963, the end of 1963. Okay, so uh, I don't know what this is. There's a letter that he's writing to someone named Faye, and it's just a personal little note. And then there's a handwritten part. Now, if you're a big shot, like a congressman or a president or an apostle, you don't write your own letters. You dictate them. And that's what Paul did for this whole letter. He dictates the letter. Someone else writes it down. They may correct a little bit of Paul's grammar. I don't know what goes on, but there's, he did not write it. He, however, inserts something at the end, just like this person did. And what it says there is, I tried to locate Dwight in Paris. Dwight Eisenhower? I don't know. It could be. I went to his hotel and left a message, but uh, he was out. So I don't know what's going on there. But if you were to get this letter, let's just pretend it's a long letter. Let's pretend it's 16 chapters long. <laughs> anyway, it's this long letter. At the very end, it's signed, Apostle Paul, and in his handwriting is this personal note. Dude, what's the best part of the letter? It's that personal note, Right? It's that personal little thing. Or like this time of year, you're going to start to get fundraising letters 
from your friends who love you dearly who are going on overseas projects, right? For summer, which is great. Dear, insert name here, right? To my best, insert, you know, name. Um, and then there'll be this letter, and then the very end will be a little personal note. And I don't know if where your eyes scan, my eye always goes to that little personal note. And this is Paul's little personal note. Look at what he says here at the end of this book. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Now, granted, there weren't typewriters uh, at this time. So at this moment in the letter, the handwriting changes. It's now Paul's. And you're looking at it going, this is cool. This is neat. This is written by the Apostle Paul. I, Paul, write this in my own hand. So you've got to be thinking, what follows has got to be really good, right? And here's what follows. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Wow. Have a nice day. Smiley face, you know, circle, <laughs> emoticon, emoticon. Uh, if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Come, Lord Jesus. Which, by the way, is uh, the, the phrase there is Maranatha. That's where you get the phrase Maranatha, uh, if you ever heard that phrase before. It is used here in the book of Revelation. That's it. Come, O Lord. And he says, the grace of the Lord be with you. Okay? Wow. That's what he's going to say. What is this all about? Why does Paul think it's that important to, to light up something like this? Well, I think one of the things he's trying to do is if you boil away everything about faith, if you boil down everything about the Bible, if you boil down everything about morality and everything, what does Christianity boil to? This thing. Do you love Jesus? That's, that's where it boils down to. And he says this. This is what makes the difference. Do you love Jesus? But then he says if you don't, he's saying there's a curse on you? Wow. That's harsh, man. I mean, it's one thing to be a promoter of your faith, but cursing other people? He's not saying it in the sense that something happens to you because you don't believe. He's stating it in such a way that says, you're already there, and by not believing, you just stay there. If you remember how the Bible's put together, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the garden, it's a beautiful thing. Everything is happy. Adam and Eve are doing great. There's no problems. They're naked, and they're not ashamed. So it's a warm culture, and they enjoy each other naked. It's like, woo, this is great. I, don't, I guess we're naked. I didn't know anything different, so we're naked. And everything's fine. And then sin enters the world, and the first thing they are is ashamed. And they cover themselves, and their nakedness is exposed. And not just their physical nakedness, but every part of them. Sin enters the world, and everything changes at that point. And God uh, looks at the serpent, who was the one who deceived them, the, uh, Eve, the one who first uh, took a bite of the fruit, and then Adam, and it, you read the word curse over and over. Cursed be this, cursed be that. Cursed is the ground because of you and so on. There's a curse. We live in a cursed world. We live in a cursed world. The curse is not gone. When Christ came, he offered a lifeboat for those who want to remove themselves from this, but you're still you're still in a land that is cursed. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 3. Uh, in John chapter 3, you remember this passage? Uh, there, if you not, you remember the rainbow hair guy 
holding up the sign, John 3.16, right? Very familiar with that. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Everybody's heard that. The next two verses, though, very few people know the context. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only son. In America, we got this backwards. We think that everybody deserves to go to heaven. Everybody deserves good things. And then those people who reject God, those are the people who are bad. The Bible teaches that we all live in a cursed land and it's not about goodness or badness. It's whether or not you get in the lifeboat. It's whether or not you trust Christ. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Then he goes on to say, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. The grace, may the grace, that's different than curse. Grace is blessing. May you have a blessing. Then, he, and this is where Paul often ends his letters with that phrase. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And then he adds this. And this had me floored. His phrase has me floored. I'm still kind of reeling from it, actually. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus, amen. Now, as Americans, that's the way we close our letters, right? Love, comma, Mike. Unless your name's not Mike, then that'd be really weird. But love, you know, that's just what we do. That's not how they did it in, in, in the ancient areas when this was written, okay, at the time of Jesus, and time of Paul. They just said, may the, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's the end. But he says, my love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Paul actually loves these people. Now, you're saying, so what? No big deal. Let me just remind you real briefly. If you were here a year ago, this will be a bit of a review. Uh, but if not, I want to remind you who the Corinthians are. All right? Welcome to Corinth. Corinth. I want to give you the top 10 issues in the book of 1 Corinthians that Paul has to deal with. And he has to deal with them head on. Uh, Paul deals with divisions among the leadership. There is a church war going on in at least four different factions, which is interesting because this room is always divided into four chunks for me. And so it's like the four of you are just, we got the over here and we got this and they don't like them, but they don't like them more. So then they like them because they're more enemies towards them. And then you got these over here who just hate everybody and right? We, in America, we can only handle usually two sides in church war. They had it right. Four. Cage match. Free for all. Last one standing. A man is having an affair in the church with his stepmother. Yeah. Okay. But he's having this affair with her. And there are actually some people in the church. There are many in the church who say, hey, you're free in Jesus. Christ died for your sins. Do whatever you want. Uh, the... There are rich people and sophisticated ones who are taking advantage of others, even taking them to court. Uh, there are people who, because they came from a pagan background with pagan sexuality, they take this sexuality and they, they think that's how it should be in the church. And so they're still visiting the pagan temples and engaging in sexual behavior with, this, uh, with the prostitutes at the pagan temples. There are others uh, in the church or think that anything enjoyable is sin. Anything. So you eat the worst food. Even sex within marriage is wrong. Nothing enjoyable. It's got all these different extremes. There's big debates on how they should uh, deal with pagan background. In other words, is it okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Uh, can we eat that from the meat markets? 
Uh, the worship was an absolute, absolute disaster when they got together. It was crazy. It was uh, everything from uh, disorder, cultural issues, men and women all messed up. We saw that with the head coverings piece. The uh, people getting drunk on the communion wine. Uh, and then as they try to display the gifts that God has given them, it's charismania. It is absolute chaos going on. And some people in the church actually believe that Jesus did not bodily raise from the dead. Now, how does Paul deal with them right in the beginning of the letter? Now, I want you to hear something here loud and clear, all right? You think, well, this is easy for Paul. No, it wasn't. You've got you to gotta know Paul's history. What was Paul's history? Paul was raised a squeaky clean Jewish boy who's being trained to be a rabbi. He, he challenges people in the book of Philippians. He says, according to legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. In other words, here's the Old Testament. Find something in there. Go ahead, I dare you, that I broke. Paul is a squeaky clean choir boy. And he's hanging around with these Corinthians. They are messed up. They are earthy. They are sexually deviant. They are doing all kinds of crazy stuff. So Paul's going to write them a letter. He comes there. He tells them about Jesus. They turn from their, from their ways. They come to Jesus. They're different. And what do they do? They go back to even some of the worst ways. How does Paul open this letter? First Corinthians. Bring us back. Just bring us back about a year. How does he open the letter? Verse 4, he says this. I thank God. I always thank God for you because of the grace given you in Christ Jesus. Wow. These are not people that the Apostle Paul would have been naturally attracted to and said, I like these people. They're my kind of folks. Okay? Picture this. Wearing a, a, a far number four jersey in Lambeau Field. And actually saying, I love, I love, I love the Packer fans, okay? It's that kind of a deal. It's you're in enemy territory. These are, these are not your kind of people. I love Packer fans. You're great. The, the idea, though, is you are not like them at all. And Paul loves them. He loves them so much that he's going to write them another letter. 2 Corinthians. And in this letter, he talks about coming and visiting them again. And it's a little bit tricky on how this all works out. But he makes a visit to them. It doesn't go well. It breaks his heart. And he writes this letter of 2 Corinthians and he says this. He says, I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth for another visit. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith and it is... Uh, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, and most people think he's referring to 1 Corinthians, or it could be another letter that we have lost, but I, I wrote as I did, so that when I came I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart, and with many tears. 
not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Paul deeply, deeply loves these people. So I got one big question here as we close. How do you do that? How do you love people that by your own cultural background, how do you love people who are unlovable? How does he do that? He tells us in 2 Corinthians. I'm teasing you to 2 Corinthians. We are going to do this book sometime, but I'm going to tease you with 2 Corinthians. The answer is the gospel. This man who was squeaky clean, all right, squeaky clean, found out in the book of Acts, in the ninth chapter, that he was a deep sinner. First time in his life he realized that. Some of you, the greatest gift you can get this morning, if you grew up going to church all your life and everything, is how sinful you really are. It's the greatest gift you can get. Because until then, the cross doesn't mean anything. It just kind of makes up for a couple of your boo-boos. But when you get the depth of it and you understand what you really are and that deep down within you there's something going on that's rebellious against God and you go, oh my gosh, this is the gospel. And Paul lays it in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. He says this, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Hear that? How do we look at people differently now? Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. What's going on here? How does Paul look at people? And what's, Paul, what's going on within Paul that makes him able to do this? I want to use the same illustration I used last week using an iceberg, okay? The up what's above there is, or this is how we look at others. What is above there is their behavior, or it is the way that the, the world would look at them. Our culture says basically, look at the accomplishments. Look at what you do. Look at how you look. Look at how you dress. Look at what kind of car you have. All this stuff defines you. And that's not what Christ says at all. That is not what Christ says at all. He says this. He says what defines you is that every single person alive is an image bearer of him. Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. And in the image of God he made them. Male and female he created them. I have to scream this at myself when I'm around someone who maybe is, on the ho- is a homeless person or maybe smells bad. Or, guess what? That person is as valuable as and is made in God's image as much as I am. And I have to scream that to me because everybody else in the world and all the other things in life tell me that that's not true. I have to say that. And then there's basically these kinds of people. There are lost and confused people. They're lost. They don't know Christ yet. Or there are people who've been found, redeemed, those who found Christ, and they're working it out. The Corinthians were found, but they were confused on a lot of stuff. Now, what difference does that make? In, if that's true, if that's how I look at others, I need to understand what's going on within me. 
what's going on within me. If what's above the iceberg here for me is I have a judgmental, unloving heart, you've got to understand something. I don't believe the gospel then. I may say I do. I may have a big, thick Bible. I may go to church all the time. But if I'm not loving people, you don't have a behavior problem. You have a gospel problem. And here's what's going on. One of these things over here, which I will call uh, churchianity. Churchianity is the idea that's saying, if I just am part of a church, if I'm just religious, I can be good enough. If I do that, what I start to get is one of two things. I actually am achieving some of these things, and so I look down on you, or I'm not achieving them, but doggone it, I'm going to put a mask on so big, you're never going to see the real me, because I need to score better than you, or at least above the waterline of what is acceptable. So there's what churchianity says. I'm better than you. Don't, don't you know that isn't how Christians should act? What's wrong with you? That's how Christians act. These people are giving me and my church a bad name, or you're not worth my time. My time is valuable because I'm important. You know, I'm kind of a big deal. People know me. I have many leather-bound books, you know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I am, uh, that's, what, that's what churchianity says. Why does Paul remind them of the gospel? Anyone who doesn't believe, anyone who doesn't love the Lord is under curse. And then love one another. Because that's what the gospel says. The gospel says this. Christianity, which is not a religion in the classic sense of religion. It's a relationship with the living Christ. Says these things. That people actually matter to God. All people. And that I am to love others because Jesus loves even me. And the depths of the gospel, the depths of the gospel reach to even me. It is fascinating to read Paul. And if you date his letters, he goes on to talking to himself as, when he starts off by saying, I'm the least of the apostles. Then later he says, I'm the least of all God's people. And then last thing he says at the end, towards the end of his life, he says, I'm the least of all people. That's how a person grows in grace. You start to realize, oh my gosh, I am, I need more grace than everybody. I'm a poster child for grace. That wretch in the song Amazing Grace, that was me. If you don't buy that, forget loving people. Because it's just a task. Oh, I need to love you. So how do I love you? I, just, I guess I just love you. Give you money or flowers or whatever. No, 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 no. Because what that is is just duty. That's just duty. My wife doesn't want me to say, oh, it's our anniversary. Here's flowers. That's what good husbands do. That pretty much does it, right? Check. What else are we going to do today? That will not win any points. Not that I'm about scoring points. Maybe I am. But what I want in my marriage is to be at a point where I'm so in love with Carol and I have her heart and she has my heart that I can't wait for our anniversary, which is August 13th. And, see? And... I can't wait to enjoy it. There's a difference. There's a huge difference. What this leads then, after I get there, is I repent of my moralism, my religiosity. And if you're not doing that on a daily basis, you're not getting this. Don't worry, I'll keep preaching it, so you do. But you're not getting it. If you're six months old or, or, or longer in a, in a, as a follower of Jesus, you struggle with this. You do. And if you don't, you're not paying attention. Because you do. Every day, you've got to tell yourself this. 
And I need to come to Jesus. I need the gospel more than anybody else. What this does then is that leads to love. That leads to where I actually respect people, actually care for people. It's a great story of during the 70s, during the hippie revolution, how one church was really struggling with it and they decided that they were going to have a really tight, everybody dress up kind of service. So everybody had suit and ties on, uh, you know, long dresses, very formal, whole thing. Church is packed. They're going to have service. Right when the service begins, in walks a barefoot, hair down to the back, smelly hippie. Comes, if this were the room, uh, he would like walk in here. He looks around for a place to sit. There's nowhere to sit. So he comes and he sits on the floor right there. And the preacher's about ready to preach. This guy's sitting right there. Captain Obvious. This is weird, right? This is weird. So preacher just kind of goes like that and makes eye contact with the, the head deacon back there who's the usher. And this old man in his, in his 80s starts making his way down. Very formal, suit and tie, whole thing comes down, slowly making his way. And everybody can tell what's going to happen. This guy's going to come front. He's going to escort this hippie out. You don't belong here. Or at least give him a you know, seat way in the back or something. This guy, formal suit, comes right down, walks down, comes over here, and he sits down next to the guy. That's love. You don't get that by a religious understanding of the gospel. Because that hippie guy, he ain't attractive. There ain't much about him that's attractive. But that's love. Mark Driscoll, um, pastor in Seattle, has written 12 keys to understand the difference between religion and the gospel. And I just want to close with these. Just jot these down. This will be on the internet if you, if you, uh, on our website um, with the PowerPoint here. He says, how do you know the difference between the religion and the gospel? And it's exactly opposite. When I say religion now, I'm not referring to when James talks about good religion. There is good religion. But I'm referring more to religion is what I'm a religious person. I, am, I will do these things and I am better morally than other people. I am a, somewhat of a Pharisee. We all struggle with this. He says this. He says, religion says, I obey. If I obey, God will love me. If you don't struggle with that, you're not, you're not listening. Because I think this, and i got to repent of this all the time. God will love me if I do the right things. And the, and the gospel says, because God loves me, I get to obey. I get to. It's totally flipped. Religion says, uh, <clears throat> religion has good people and bad people. The gospel has only repentant people and unrepentant people. Huge difference. Religion uh, values a birth family. I was born into a nice Christian home, therefore I'm a Christian. The gospel values a new birth. Have you personally decided to make Jesus Christ the love of your life? That's new birth. Religion depends on what I do. The gospel depends on what Jesus has already done. Religion claims that sanctification means I'm, I'm becoming a better person justifies me before God. I'm going to basically, God, you owe me. Look at what I've done. The gospel claims that justification, because I'm okay in Christ and accepted that, that allows me then to do good things. It is totally flipped. Religion has the goal to get from God. 
I need to do this so that I can gain something from God. God will be good to me. God will give me heaven. But you're not really sure why you want to go there because what you really enjoy isn't going to be there necessarily. What's going to be there is God. Gospel says that the goal is to get God. You want to know God. You want to know Christ. Religion sees hardships as punishment for sin. When hard things go on in your life, is the first thing you think of is there's a, the God that God really just, he can't wait to punish you? Oh, I knew God would just love to squash me like a bug. Is that your view? But if that were true, he never would have sent Christ. And I struggle with that one. And so do you. The gospel sees hardship as sanctified affliction that God knows what he's doing. He's working in me in such a way when I go through hard times to make me be the person that he wants me to be. Religion is effectively all about me. It's about how I'm doing. The rules that I'm keeping. And the gospel is completely about Jesus Christ. Religion believes appearing as a good person is the key. Key on the word appearing. It's important that I get an outward appearance that says, I need you to see me in a certain way so I'm acceptable. The gospel says honesty. No more masks. Religion has an uncertainty of standing before God. Boy, I hope I'm good enough to get into heaven. The gospel has a certainty because you're not trusting in yourself. You're trusting in the finished work of the cross. Religion sees Jesus as the means. Gospel sees Jesus as the end. And lastly, Religion ends in either pride, because I can do it, I'm good enough, or despair. No matter how hard I try, I cannot measure up to what these other people are expecting me to do and what I think God is expecting me to do. And the gospel says, you know what, give up, stop trying, trust Christ, and out of fullness, walk in a new way. It ends in humble joy. I want to close this morning a little bit differently. I've been in this study for a year. Saying goodbye to an old friend today. I want to ask you a simple question. From the whole year. Now some of you have only been here today. So it's today. Just from today. Others of you have been here a year. I'm going to ask you in the next uh, four minutes as we sing this song. To ask God to reveal to you some one thing or something from the whole book that we went through. And maybe it's from today. That's fine. But something how you need to respond. We'll just leave it open to however God want to work in your life. Let's pray together. Lord, I want to thank you for this journey through this book of the Bible. I know for me, I'm, I'm, uh, I don't know if I'll ever look at people who are not like me or whose behavior I don't like the same. Paul goes on and he talks about uh, correcting that behavior in a gospel-centered way. Yeah. But at the same time, he starts the letter by saying, I thank God always for you and ends the letter by saying my love to you. So I pray for that, God. I pray you do that in my heart. God, that you would make me a lover. That you'd make me be a person who believes the gospel. A person who believes that I need it more than anyone else in this room. I pray for that. God, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you reveal to the minds of people listening right now, like a rifle shot, that one thing that you'd like to speak to them this morning about. And if necessary, bring up a whole year's worth of study in this book together. 
Do that, God. Make much of yourself, even as we close with this last song. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.